Good morning, Emmanuel. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. And uh, if you think we've been slowing down and slowing down as we go through Matthew, we will now reach our slowest point of all, where I'll try to handle one verse uh, at a time as we move through the Lord's Supper, and then Lord willing, Lord's Supper, Lord's Prayer, and then uh, Lord willing, we'll speed up again after we do that. But I, I wanted after we, I think all got to feel the great relief of the simplicity of prayer last week, and just think about how simple it is to just go before God weak and to make these simple requests that He's already written out for us. I wanted to, in the coming weeks, just open up what those simple requests are, because they're, they're simple, but they're extremely profound, and it's no stretch of the imagination to call them world-changing and definitely soul-transforming. So I want to read to you the Lord's Prayer uh, one more time, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. Again, I can't get over it. How do I pray? How do I pray? Here's Jesus giving us a personal instruction in how to pray. Don't, no guesswork here. But in this most difficult part of the Christian life, we're guided and we're helped and we're assisted. If I need to switch to this microphone because of the feedback, I'm happy to do that. Galatians, uh, Galatians, wow, what a morning. We're doing the Lord's Supper, we're in Galatians. Apparently we're going to need to pray for me once we're done reading the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Lord, you have persuaded me day by day over the last few weeks that the greatest need of Emmanuel Baptist Church, the church across the world, and of my own soul is the answer to this prayer, that you would hallow your name. That is my biggest problem as I struggle with sin in this life, and it's our biggest problem, it's certainly the biggest problem in the world, that your name is not hallowed. Or would you teach us to pray that your name would be hallowed in our own hearts and in, our, in the world? We pray that you would do this in our weakness. We pray that you'd do it, Lord, that it would break in and transform the most intractable sins in our lives, the most broken relationships. Or we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, every now and then, uh, a pop culture moment comes along in just a blip of time, and that moment gives us a glimpse into what is going on in our culture at la large. 
little moment, big picture. About two weeks ago, one of those little moments happened on my personal game, favorite game show. Not that I have a lot of game shows I love, but I do love Jeopardy. And uh, I imagine you know Jeopardy. It's been around since 1964. And it's the quiz show with a twist. They provide the answer, and then the contestants provide the question. And so the answers wind up sounding like, what is this or what is that? Well, a couple of weeks ago, if you're wanting to look it up, it was June 13th, 2023 to be exact. A couple of weeks ago on Jeopardy, in the first round, and if you're not familiar, that's the easy round, one of the contestants picked a question or an answer, I guess, from the first row. And if you're not familiar with Jeopardy, that's the easy row. So these are the softball questions. This is the easy stuff. First round, first row, contestant picks an answer, and the answer comes up on the screen like this. Matthew 6-9 says, Our Father who art in heaven, this be your name. It's a fill in the blank. It's the kind of thing you were looking for for those tests when you were in high school. You know, give me a fill in the blank. Maybe I'll figure it out. Not one contestant got the right answer. It's even better than that. Not one contestant even rang in, which means they were confident they didn't have the right answer. They knew, they knew that they didn't know. The Matthew 6, 9 prays, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so the good geniuses at Jeopardy had no idea how to finish this verse, the very first verse that we're focusing on this morning. And in this one little moment, we got a glimpse into a pervasive cultural reality. And honestly, if we're honest, pervasive church reality. And that's the reality that people do not know the Bible anymore. And if you're thinking, well, I knew it was hallowed. Let's set the bar a touch higher <laughs> for the church. The reality is that people do not know the Bible anymore. Pollsters actually tell us that over 50% of high school students believe Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife not biblical cities. 12%, so this one's not too bad, of adults believe Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Sixty percent of Americans can't name five of the Ten Commandments. I think now we're probably getting a little closer to home. Many adults believe the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham, when in fact it was a sermon preached by the Lord Jesus Christ. Researchers George Gallup and uh, Jim Castelli put the problem squarely. Quote, Americans revere the Bible, but they don't, by and large, read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. And of course, we don't laugh at illiteracy in general when we find out someone can't read. 
It's not just a laughing matter, it's a sad reality. And to think that many don't read the book of books and don't know the book of books is not simply a point of Christian comedy, but it's actually a point of mourning for the church and a point of great grief for those of us who've been commissioned to make disciples of all nations and to make the Word of God known everywhere. It's a sad reality. It's one that if you're sitting here and you're kind of feeling like the butt of the joke, like I, I thought Sodom and Gomorrah were married, it's one that we really hope would be remedied, honestly, in people's lives one Sunday at a time as church after church after church just returns to the old faithful practice of just spending the bulk of their services teaching what the Bible says. So it's our hope that the shame that was really exposed on Jeopardy would be remedied. Now, what's ironic is that the reason Matthew 6, 9 is not known in America is because Matthew 6, 9 is not answered in America. It's because the people of God do not often storm the gates of heaven for both themselves, their cities, their culture and this civilization begging God. Lord, don't let it be that you could be forgettable, but rather hallow your name. Now, I just think it's amazing how much uh, we are actually like the contestants on Jeopardy. Now, we know the word. Way to go. You filled in the word. But how many of us walk through life where the dominant reality is the deep experience of your own heart, of God's name taking up a holy place in your every thought, word, and action? Knowing which words go in the sentence is the baby step. It's the answer that God gives in the soul that's the treasure. That's what we're after. It's the knowing and the experiencing and the tasting and seeing of God's goodness in hallowing His name in our hearts. And I just want to point out two very simple things in this passage. Two very simple things from this prayer. And the first is that this prayer exposes our heart's greatest need. This prayer that many of us could recite in the dark, blindfolded, spun around backwards, this prayer exposes our heart's greatest need. Just listen to it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now I want to remind you that right before Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said something extremely insightful about the human soul. 
He said right before he gave the Lord's Prayer, he said in Matthew 6, 8, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The whole Lord's Prayer is built on this present premise that the Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And in fact, just a millisecond of meditation reveals that he apparently diagnoses my needs differently than I do. Because when even the godly pray, what we find is that they're dominated by what they need materially. Give us this day our daily bread. If they're walking in deep spirituality, they might be aware of their need for the forgiveness of our sins, forgive us our debts. If they're at a level of maturity, they might know they're going to need help with temptation and trials. That's all important, right? And I was talking to a brother the other day, and he said, you know, it's amazing. My prayer life is often consumed with my sin. And when that's the case, we actually think we're doing pretty good. Hey, I didn't just pray for the home renovations. But Jesus knocks those requests down to four, five, and six in the six requests of the Lord's Prayer. He's got something way up at the top that we tend to glance over, that we tend to miss. You know, it's interesting, we often were focused on what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? And the assumption when we start our prayers like that is that you're the kind of person that could discern God's will at all that you'd know what was good for you if it hit, hit you in the face. Without an awareness that if I don't have a hallowed heart, a heart completely consecrated to God, I wouldn't recognize God's will if it was laid out right in front of me. I wouldn't see it as good. What God, when God says to us, your father knows what you need, and then he begins the prayer with, hallowed be your name, what he's saying is the greatest need you have is heart change. The greatest need you have is that your heart be oriented differently. It's not skill. It's not technique. It's not even ethical instruction. Let me say that again. Your greatest need isn't just to know the right thing to do. And so often in my life, where do I get in trouble? I'll tell you where I get in trouble. I get in trouble doing the right thing the wrong way. Right? I get latched onto something biblical. And then I go for it badly. And what's going on there? What's going on is that God's name God's Word, the reality that God is my Father, isn't the deepest point of reverence in my heart, and yours too. So Jesus says, I, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, and then He decides what that need actually is. He reorients the need. He instructs us in what's most important, and apparently before food, before sin, and before temptation, it's a hallowed heart, an advancing kingdom, and His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, I'm saying a lot, but I'm not defining my terms, am I? What on earth does it even mean to have a hallowed heart? What does that mean? It would have been interesting if the Jeopardy question wasn't just, uh, what's fill in the blank? Hallowed be thy name, but the Jeopardy question was, define hallowed. What does hallowed mean? And uh, the word literally means to treat something as holy. When we're praying, Lord, hallowed be your name, we're not praying, Lord, make your name holy. We can't cause any change in the character of God. God is holy. But we're asking for his name to be recognized as holy, treated as holy, honored as holy, revered as holy. That's what we're going for when we pray, hallowed be your name. Uh, the Lexham translation on my Bible software translates it like this. It says, our Father who's in heaven, may your name be treated as holy. Or the Christian Standard Bible, some of you may have. If you're unfamiliar with all these Bible translations, they're all coming off of one source. But as language changes, of course, translations become helpful. And we're blessed to have so many in the English language. The Christian Standard Bible says, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Now listen to this. If I communicate only one thing in this first point, let it be this. God believes my biggest need and your biggest need is to have hearts that treat Him as holy and honor Him as holy. Now what does it mean to treat something as holy? What does that mean? Or what does holy mean? And often when it comes to holiness, you'll get lots of different ideas that float around in the water. So for many people, holiness is a purely practical term. So maybe some of you grew up in kind of more rigid traditions where it was like, I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. And that was the sort of definition of holiness, just a separateness from various practices. That's clearly a dated illustration now from your reaction. But separateness, although it's key to holiness, isn't at the core of holiness. When those angels in Isaiah are gathered around God's throne and they say, holy, 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 they're not just saying separate, separate, separate is the Lord God Almighty. They're not just saying, you're different, you're different, you're different. They're saying that, but they're saying something else. At the root, of holiness, and if you want to research this some more, you can look into the work of Wayne Grudem or Peter Gentry. But the root of holiness is this, God's own devotion to himself. He is absolutely devoted to himself. Now think about this, you knew this just instinctually. He made the trees and the mountains and the rivers so that they would glorify who? Him. And he made you in his image so that you would reflect 
And this would be proud for any of us because all of us are living on borrowed glory. And for us to walk around like we're the hot stuff in the universe is to be a glory thief. But for him, who's the source of everything, who made everything, it's the only right thing in the universe to make everything to reflect and glorify him. He is utterly devoted to the most loving thing he could ever do. Display himself. Put himself on display. Make himself central in the soul. His centrality in your soul is what you were made for, and it is your greatest need to have his, his reality, his existence, his name revered in your heart is the deepest need of your soul. Holiness is God's own devotion to himself. And when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're praying that we would be separated to that one desire, that one passion. It's a marvelous illustration of this. What it looks for us to be holy, looks, looks, like, looks like for us to be holy in Exodus 34. If you don't know the Old Testament, one of the big things that happens in the Old Testament is God builds a temple for himself. He spends chapters describing every detail of that temple. Many annual Bible reading um, plans have run aground in those chapters. But in those chapters, there are some gems. And one of them is where God gives the instructions to, for how to build a sweet-smelling perfume for himself. His temple was to have an incense in it that you never smelled anywhere else. There was nowhere you went and you said, that reminds me of this. Because the incense was to be for God's temple and God's worship alone. And then it says, when it's giving the instructions for this incense, this incredibly unique smell, in Exodus 34, it says, the incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourself. So no one's supposed to go and say, that's nice. I'm going to take a little home for my wife. It was never that, no. He says, the incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. This incense was exclusively for God, which means most people in ancient Israel never ever smelled it. Does that ruin it? No, because it was doing what it was meant to do. It was devoted to God. And that's what your soul was meant to do. Your soul was meant to be 100% devoted to God. Another way to get at this word hallow, okay? So it, God's holiness is, is his devotion to himself. When, we're, when our hearts are hallowed, they are devoted to God. They are utterly his they reverence him. And another way to get at this idea that I find helpful, that I think kind of broadens out your reading of the Bible, is to think about the words that are synonyms, that are words that mean the same thing elsewhere in the Scriptures. Because when you read the Bible, you don't come across hallowed very often. But what you do come across is words like reverence. Awe, fear, 
and they're all getting at the same thing. Jesus is calling us to pray, our Father in heaven, reverenced be your name. Held in a holy awe be your name. Fill me with fear, that, that kind of good fear, that reverent fear, when I think about your name. Now, I want you to think with me about this for a second. Because we can hear that, and maybe you're listening to that, you're like, that sounds very spiritual. Lots of good Bible words in there. Thank you for that. And we can miss the fact that there is nothing more foreign to our hearts than what I've just described. If you got a little kid and you're like, oh man, he's just kind of, he's just sort of oriented to God right, right out of the womb, you're wrong. <laughs> None of us have a natural inclination towards reverence for God at all. Each of us are born, the Bible says, dead in trespasses and sins. And when the Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins in Ephesians chapter 2, it doesn't mean you can't breathe. It doesn't mean you can't think. It doesn't mean you can't reason. It means that your heart walks amongst all of God's glory in the world and is unmoved by who he is. You're as dead as a stone. You're like a deaf man listening to Beethoven, surrounded by all these glorious sounds and unmoved by what God's putting on display among you. I'll give you a few examples of this. We're thinking about the human problem. What's, what's the human problem? Why is it we need to pray, hallowed be your name? What's the, where did that come from? It comes from the fact that we don't honor God's name. We don't revere God's name. We're dead to God's glory. And, and, and we're in this creation that's just screaming, glorify God. And nah, not into it. Romans chapter 1 describes this reality. Many of you know these verses. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been uh, his, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not. Here's our idea: honor him as God or give thanks. This is, this is the global problem. The global problem is that even though the heavens declare the glory of God, people walk through the world and they're not interested in glorifying God. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to make a name for their family. They want to buy something shiny. They want to experience something erotic. They want to do anything but have a heart devoted to honoring and hallowing God. Let me read you one more passage from the book of Romans. It's a passage that describes the human condition. Again, a very famous passage. It's describing the human condition. What's, what is wrong with the world today? That's a question on everyone's mind. What is going wrong? We're at a unique season where everybody agrees something is going wrong. What is it? The Christian answer always goes down to the heart. 
And in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, it says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one goes good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. Listen to this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here's the problem. Listen to me. Here's the problem. The great problem that mankind faces is this. We do not revere God. We do not hallow His name. We look at the world and we see war and we see poverty and we see perversion and we see dictators and we see cowards and we see Pharisees and we see abusers and we see manipulators and we see racists. We see all of these problems, but none of those are the problem. All of that is symptom. All of that is downstream from what's rotten at the source. The human heart does not regard God. The human heart does not revere God. The human heart is sometimes willing to go to church. The human heart is sometimes willing to say, Jesus seems like a great ethical teacher. The human heart is willing to do a million things that even look religious. That's why most people on earth are religious. But what the human heart does not ever do by nature is say, I am a sinner against this God. And my only hope of being in a right relationship with Him is that He would move on my behalf to send His Son to do everything I cannot do and to die on the cross for my sins, which puts me in a situation where there is nothing about my name which should be revered. My name ought to be swallowed up into the earth and forgotten, but he has died to save me. The human heart will never do that by nature. That's why we pray, Lord, hallow your name. Lord, make your name revered. Do what is not done by anyone naturally. Do what is not done by anyone out of the womb. No one is born doing this. Now we know, beloved, that the world is full of problems. When was the last time you saw a family where grandma and grandpa loved each other, all their kids loved each other, and their kids loved each other too, all the way down the line. And family reunions were a hopping and skipping and singing with Jesus joy. Very rare. Nearly unheard of. Why? Because sin breaks that fellowship. Because when hearts aren't reverent towards God, it has effects out in our human relationships. Let me give you, I know I'm belaboring this point, but I only got two, so you got to belabor something. <laughs> just, just keep thinking with this. Keep thinking about this with me. What happens when there's no fear of God in the soul? And, and let me just tell you this. Like here, here's why I'm burdened as a pastor. We've got a lot of young people coming of age and a lot of times you'll see like a willingness to kind of go down the Christian path. 
But you start poking and probing around in their lives, and there's very little reverence for God. We have marriages at Emmanuel that are getting into midlife. And so now the problems that were cute and kind of fun in your 20s, kiss and make up, are like, I'm not sure I want to have that argument ever again with you. And the only way that kind of life gets sustained, the only way godly living gets sustained is if there's a, a reverence for God that's bigger than the circumstances and bigger than the sins. There's something gripping the soul that, that guides the soul and moves the soul to follow God in all circumstances. This is the great need. Listen to what happens without the fear of God. Psalm 36, verse 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot, cannot be found out. See what happens? When there's no fear of God, it's not like your mind goes silent. No transgression starts talking to you. Breaking God's rules starts talking to you. Sin starts talking to you. Deep at night, it's ready to talk to you. It's ready to reason with you. It's ready to tempt you. It's ready to allure you. It will speak to you all night long until you crack and break. And on top of that, the lack of the fear of God says this to you. And no one will catch you. No one will know. And there's lots of anonymity in this culture to reinforce that. You can do it. I'll be there. It'll be awesome. No one will ever know. God will never know. That's what the lack of the fear of God says. But when the fear of God comes in, then no one can be around, and the soul is anchored. The soul is governed by an awareness, by a hallowing of God's name. One more illustration. What happens to a culture when there's no fear of God? What happens to a culture when there's no reverence for God? Abraham was an Old Testament character who traveled culture to culture at times. And at one point, he gets to a particular kingdom, and he starts moving and manipulating to keep himself out of, cult, out of trouble in that culture. And he tells us why he's so worried about bad things happening to him. He says, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. He had a beautiful wife. And he thought, if I walk through this culture with no fear of God, they'll steal my wife and they'll kill me. He wasn't being crazy. If you know the story, he wasn't really full of the fear of God either. But he, he knew that when you've got less fear of God among a people, that people is untethered, they're unmoored, they're unanchored, and they're dangerous. Because there's nothing keeping them from doing wickedness. And there's no fear they'll ever get caught. As long as they can avoid the police, they can avoid all accountability. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, or if the kind of Christianity you've been exposed to doesn't really change people, maybe hasn't changed you, I want, to, I want, you, to ask you, to, I want to ask you to think about something. Have you ever considered that your biggest problem is not anything you've done? I'm not saying that it doesn't matter what we do. I'm not saying that at all. The lies we tell, the anxieties we give in, they all matter. They, they offend God and they hurt other people. Our sexual perversions, our jealousies and envies, those are real sins, but they aren't the root. The biggest problem any of us have 
the cancer in our souls is that we do not reverence the one who made us. We're not in awe of him. We can walk among mountains and trees and skyscrapers and parks, and we don't worship unless God does something supernatural in our hearts. And Christians, if you're interacting with kids or neighbors or friends, if you're aware of the nations where other gods are worshipped, you have a critical role to play in changing that. That's why this prayer is there. Hallowed be your name. That's what we're praying for. It's, it's an evangelistic prayer. Hallowed be your name. It's a missionary prayer. Hallowed be your name. It's a pastoral prayer. Hallowed be your name. It's asking for the one dominant thing that needs to change to change, and it's aware that there's nothing we can do to change it. Anyone good at taking out people's... There might be a couple people here who could take out an actual physical heart and put it back in safely. We praise God for you. But in terms of people who could actually take out the heart of the soul and change it so that it actually reveres God, there's no one. We have to ask God to do that work. It's a work that He alone can do. Well, that brings me to my second point. First, the Lord's Prayer, this first request, it, it, just, it just exposes our greatest need. We can put it another biblical way. We need to be born again. We need to reverence God. We need to hallow His name. We need to have the fear of Him placed within us. So this prayer exposes our greatest need, but here's the other thing it does. It highlights God's greatest work. What happens when this prayer gets answered. What happens when we pray for ourselves and for others, Lord, hallow your name? I've already been alluding to it, but it's quite amazing. Now, what I want to do to illustrate for you what happens when God hallows his name, what I want to do to, to explain this to you is I want to go back to what's called a new covenant promise. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, in the Old Testament, that's the part of the Bible written before Jesus was born, you have these promises given to the people of Israel. There were these promises. Hey, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something to change this wicked world. I'm going to do something to change people who don't love me and revere me. God kept speaking these words of promise to his people. And what we find when we go back and read those new covenant promises that ultimately they were promises that he would place that reverence we don't have in our hearts. I'll read you one of these new covenant promises from Jeremiah 32, verse 37. Jeremiah 32, verse 37. They shall be my people, and I will be their God, says God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me, hallow me, reverence me forever. I will give them one 
heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And listen to this. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them a land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Do you see what's being promised here? God's people are promised that they will have one heart. Christians don't have all kinds of different hearts. Yeah, you got different personalities. You don't have different kinds of hearts. Every Christian's got this heart, this heart for God that wasn't there. It's a gift of God. It's, it's the inheritance of every Christian. Not only do they have one heart, but they have one way. They study the scriptures and you go to churches all over the world. And what do you find? They're increasingly conformed to the one way that Jesus Christ is laying down. He gives them one heart and one way, and then he puts the fear of God in them. And I love this. Why don't true Christians fall away? Do they get knocked down? You bet they do. Do their eyes get confused about what's going on? You bet they do. Do they get allured away by various temptations? You bet they do. Why do they keep coming back? Why do they keep repenting? Why is this, this constant course correct in the true Christian souls? I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Because what's happening? You get off track as a Christian. What happens? You find that Romans 6 reality is in your soul. I'm a slave of righteousness. I've got to go back. Jesus in John chapter 6 is speaking to his disciples. Everybody's leaving. They don't want anything to do with this guy. He's talking about eating his body and drinking his blood. That's weird. The crowds are dispersing. And he finally turns to his most committed disciples. And he says, are you going to go too? And they say, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's what happens in the Christian soul. This fear is born. This fear is nurtured. This reverence is there. This hallowing is there. And it guards you and it keeps you on track. So when you go astray, there's this still small voice saying, return to him in repentance and faith and you'll find rest again. Return to him in repentance and faith and you'll find forgiveness again. There's this constant move of the heart. The Christian is a supernatural person. The Christian is someone who's been changed from the inside out. They've been given a reverence for God. This is just so amazing, beloved. And what's most amazing is that what we reverence, notice this, notice this, what we reverence, what we hallow, what we fear is ultimately God's name. Do you see that? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now names are interesting. Pastor Jeff talked to us a little bit about names. Bible names are very significant. None more significant than the, God, the names God gives himself. Now, it's interesting. Names sum up the whole of a person. Someone says to you, hey, do you know Ryan? Like, I know Ryan. And that means you know his personality, quirks, and characteristics. You know me. You may have noticed I only need one name. Pretty good with that. It's all pretty much have the whole of it right there. End of story. Sufficient container for all that character. But God in the scriptures is giving himself so many names. Because no one of them will hold them. He calls himself Yahweh. Yes, sir. 
And Yahweh has this idea of I am who I am. Who are you, Lord? If I were to compare myself to anyone, I would only be bringing myself down. I am who I am. Which, which means he's like a fire that burns a bush and isn't consumed. There's a self-sufficiency to God. I am who I am. And then he also calls himself other names in the Old Testament. He calls himself El Elyon, God Most High. There were all kinds of gods in the Jewish world. There wasn't just one God in the Jewish world. There were gods here and gods there, just like there's gods here and gods there in our world. And God says, listen, I need a name that says something. I'm different than all these gods. They aren't my peers. We don't go for drinks after work. I am the God most high. I am the one who's exalted above all of these gods. And then he calls himself Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord provides. He made the cattle on the thousand hills. He can deliver the cattle on the thousand hills right to your refrigerator on a regular basis. He provides for all of his people. And he's Jehovah Shalom, this self-sufficient God who gives peace, peace, provision, exaltation. And all of these names pale in comparison. They're all subsumed under this name, Father. Father. Everything begins with fathers. Fathers are the seed that bring everything else into existence. And God says, I am the quintessence of fatherhood. Fathers provide, and I am Jehovah Jireh. I am the Father who provides. And fathers in every home are to be honored as the leaders of those homes because they are just a microcosm picture of the Father who is to be honored above all. God is the one, and God, what happens when a father's presence is there in a home? It brings peace. And so all of these Old Testament names are subsumed under this one name, Father. And let me ask you this, what would happen to your daily life if the dominant reality in your soul is God is my Father? He's going to care for me. He's going to provide for me. He is above everything that could ever threaten me. He's not going to run out of gas because he is the originator of all gas and everything else on the planet. He is the self-sufficient one. J.R. Packer wrote, you sum up the whole New Testament religion. If you describe it as the knowledge of God, as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, the father's wrath is satisfied, we sang. If, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Beloved, we're picking around at the edges of how people change. 
we're picking around at the edges of how marriages are fixed and how singleness is thrived in. We're picking around at the edges, tweaking this little sin or that little sin. And there's a place for that. The New Testament does that. But the core, the blazing center is what's wrong in the soul. What is wrong that the soul doesn't regard God's words and God's ways and God's providences and God's, the, the difficult things he brings into our lives and the blessings he brings into our lives. The difficulty is that our heart doesn't rise up in all of these things and say, Father, every joy or trial falling from above is traced upon our dial by the Son of love. It's all coming to us from the Father. There are some of you that have sins that have clung so close for so long, it makes you wonder if you're even a child of God. And you can't seem to get victory. And you pray about that sin, and you pray about that sin, and you pray about this sin. And I'm not going to tell you to stop praying about that sin, but I'm going to tell you to not knock it down from number one to number four for a season. You get down on your knees every day and say, Lord, hallow your name. Make the number one desire of my soul to be you. Create a devotion in my soul that is all-consuming, that wants you. Make it a reality and not just a theology to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind, and with all my strength. Create reverence in me. Some of you are in marriages that are, oh, humanly speaking, they are without hope. And here's the problem with marriages that are without hope. They often involve one or two people who think they are without problems. But they're so without problems, the other person is nearly done. Nearly done with you, Mr. or Mrs. No Problems person. And you can't see it. Man, when it gets that bad, the hard part is people can't even see it. Pastors can't make them see it. Friends can't make them see it. Nobody can make them see it. It's evident and obvious to so many people in the room, but you can't see it. How on earth could you ever get to see it? Put reverence in our souls, oh God. Put a, a fear, put a hallowing, put a, put, a, put a deep and abiding reality that God is all in all. The sin is defined by going against Him. And that holiness is defined by being in awe of Him. If you are a husband in a troubled marriage, you ought to be on your knees every single morning. Lord, hallow your name in me. Hallow your name in me. Hallow your name in me. I will not rest until you bless me. Hallow your name in me. And then let the chips fall where they may. As He begins to open up your soul to His holiness. Some of you are in trials. Oh, you're in trials. 
You're in trials. Why are you in trials? You were a pretty godly person before the trials. I mean, come on, is there that much work to do? What are we doing here? I thought I'd cleared most of this stuff out, but you're, okay, harder again, harder again. We're doing this one more time. Repeat. Okay, Lord, thank you very much. I, I quit doing that years ago, but we're still going to bring a few more trials. Thank you very much. What is God doing? He's working in you. A soul that says like Job, I have declared that which I did not understand. I talked about God, but I didn't have a clue. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job came to the end of his ordeal and he said, I talked about you, but I did not get you. I thought I knew a lot, but there were things about you too wonderful for me. And he goes on and he comes to a place where God's name is hallowed. What if, what, if, what if the number one prayer in suffering wasn't get me out, though that's not a wrong prayer, but not the number one prayer. But the number one prayer was, whatever you're doing here, make your name hallow in my heart and in everyone who sees me. Make, make the reverence and fear of you glorify you in all that goes on. If you're not a Christian and you're like, how do I get a vision of the holiness of God? Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Why is this perfect man hanging on a cross? I mean, everyone agrees Jesus was a good teacher, Jesus was a good man. It's not in doubt by and large. Why is this good man hanging on a cross? Because the holy God of the universe hates sin and will not overlook it. And his son came to took the, take the penalty of sin on himself. He's on the cross so that you don't have to be. He's on the cross because you deserve to be. He's on the cross because God will not overlook your sin, but he will take it away in Jesus. He will deal with it in his son. And so in the cross, what you see is God dealing with sin, but in a way that you don't find out God is holy in hell, but you find out God is holy as your redeeming Father who takes sinners into His kingdom. Turn to Him. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your sin. Don't give it another moment. Don't give it another look. Turn away and trust in Jesus Christ who paid the wrath of God so that you could be restored to the Father. And Christians, pray every day. Pray every day. Pray for all the world. Pray for every nation. Pray for every lost person that comes to your mind. Pray over and over and over and over again for hearts that seem hopeless, because they are. Pray in hope, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Father, we thank you for your grace and your glory and your goodness and your holiness. You are our Father, and we pray that we would love you forever because of the holiness you've placed in our hearts. Amen.